Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today as we wrap up this worship series called Asking for a Friend. I do hope that it's been beneficial to you uh, as we ask these questions that sometimes can be hard, right? And sometimes we're either thinking in our own hearts or minds or we know others that we love and cherish are thinking in their own heads and hearts. And so it's good for us to every once in a while just ask these questions that for some of us may be easy, but certainly for others of us may be difficult and, and want some answers to. And so this particular question is clearly no different. Uh, the question, of course, this week that we're going to address in our final time together is, is Jesus really the only way? And I, I, I'm here to say that just in this room, you need to know there are people with two very clear differences with regard to what this question means. Uh, for some of us, we're thinking, golly, why would we even ask this question? Of course, Jesus is the way. It says it in Scripture, and I believe it, and therefore, we just need to move on. Why is this even an issue, right? And then there are others of us who are uh, believing in a God who's grand and big and glorious, and we cannot fathom but to think that a God of love and a God of forgiveness wouldn't dare let some people uh, perish in everlasting condemnation. And so everything in between, right? And of course, a part of what we've discovered over these last many weeks and really years is that when people are Googling things, right, looking for answers, and they put in this particular question, is Jesus really the only way? They're trying to discover a genuine response for their own faith journey, some of whom may already believe in Jesus, some of whom have no faith claim at all, and they're simply searching. And so we want to be uh, open and transparent and try to help address these as best we can because we want to reach anybody and everybody for Christ's sake, right? But even the question itself can sometimes uh, kind of throw us askew. Is Jesus really the only way? Is he really the only way to heaven? Is he really the only way to God? Is he really the only way to salvation? And there may be a few other blanks you may want to put in there, I don't know, but uh, sometimes it's hard to sort of get at what, what are you really looking for in terms of the, the answer to this particular question? Is Jesus really the only way. I'm going to look at it from that, the perspective of the last question, is Jesus really the only way to salvation? Uh, uh, because there are too many other ways we can kind of go down rabbit trails if we don't uh, kind of align ourselves. And so as I was reflecting on this, I, I literally started to reflect on my own spiritual journey, my own salvation journey that each of us, if we've claimed in Jesus, have, right? Uh, for some of us, that may have been decades ago, as it was for me. For some of us, it may have been just a year or two ago, or maybe perhaps even this year. But when I reflect on my own spiritual journey, I, I do so with great joy and with great elation at the wonderful ways in which God, in Christ, has been active in my life. I was uh, 12 years old when I accepted Jesus. I got baptized and claimed this faith at the age of 12. Many of you know I grew up in the Methodist Church. That's not the typical format in the United Methodist Church, right? It's often uh, infant baptism, but uh, in my family tradition, which goes back many generations within Methodism, we actually had believer's baptism as a part of our heritage in my own personal family on my father's side. So all of my siblings and I made a personal choice for Jesus, got baptized at age 12, and I can honestly say to you, even to this day, I didn't know what I was doing. It was a conscious choice. I remember that. I deliberately wanted to know who Jesus was, and I made that faith claim and got baptized. So much so did it change my life in that beginning that it caused me to want to be more active in the life of the church and discover more about who Jesus was. And so I engaged myself heavily in Sunday school and youth group and, and youth group on Sunday nights. And in those relationships and in those connections, I began to see the face of Jesus in other people. 
And it began to have impact on who I was, and, and it began to change the way I thought and the way I processed and the way I engaged with other people. So much so that by the time I was a, a, a sophomore in high school, I began to wonder, golly, uh, God began to nudge at me and say, I, I, I want you in ministry. I want you in full-time ministry. And as a, as a sophomore in high school, of course, I ran. I, I didn't want that. I did, every preacher I knew was bald and old and fat. And so I just, <laughs> how does that happen? I mean, it just, like, it just happened overnight, right? I didn't want to do that, right? But, but I could feel God nudging me, and I could feel God sort of pulling me towards Him and, and, and wanted me in deeper relationship. And I got very involved not only in our youth program at church, but I got very involved in high school in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was an athlete, and, and what I found in FCA was a deep appreciation of how people were connect, connected and committed to Jesus. I could see it in their, their lives and in the way they acted and the way they conducted their, themselves, these contemporaries of mine. And then I finally owned my call to ministry. Finally, after three years of daily prayer to God, not understanding and not knowing why and how and where this was all going to transpire, as I was about to embark on my college degree at SMU, I, I finally accepted and, and submitted to God and realized that God wanted me to do this thing and God was going to equip me and God was going to prepare me. It clearly was nothing that I could accomplish, nothing that I could do. And so as I went into college, I got involved in what was known at SMU as Collegians for Christ. It was a little sort of mom-and-pop stop shop for a campus ministry uh, uh, in the similar format to Campus Crusade for Christ. It was not Campus Crusade, but it, was, it organized itself as such, it operated as such, and it, it, it realized in my own life a pouring out of God's Spirit. I met Perrin Jones, who was the director, and Perrin poured faith into me. He literally just opened up the scriptures and he talked and taught me and mentored me and coached me and helped me to develop a great appreciation of the spiritual practices, reading scripture daily, praying daily, worshiping God, entering into connection with God. And, and all of that was Jesus working in my heart, helping to develop my soul, helping me to nurture and to develop a relationship. And then, of course, I went into full-time ministry and I continued to grow in my faith with Christ and, and develop and nurture that. And Kay and I got married, and, and we went off to exotic places to do ministry, like Altus, Oklahoma, and Wichita Falls, Texas. Never underestimate a good West Texas town or a good Southwest Oklahoma city because those people poured Jesus into our hearts. They opened up Scripture in powerful ways, and they opened up the power of the Spirit in our lives. And, and then I eventually had the opportunity to do ministry in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, to go to Chile, to Panama, to uh, South, other South American countries, and, and just to share Christ with other people and to witness Jesus moving through these communities of faith. And it always, always nurtured who I was. And I discovered life and truth and the way of Christ over and over again. And a part of what I realize in hindsight now, some 45 years after claiming Jesus for the very first time, that he was always nurturing me. He was always developing my heart and my soul. He was always working in a relationship with me, and I can sense it even to this day. And so part of what I glean from all that is I remember that Jesus and a relationship with him is always, always our end goal. 
to realize that heaven is not our end goal. Heaven is a part of our journey, and heaven is a part of of what we encounter in our faith and relationship with God. But a relationship with Jesus and the nurturing of that relationship and the growing of that connection and a a realization that there's no way that I can work on God's kingdom or, or help make God's kingdom come unless I know Christ and unless I work in and work on developing that relationship with him. That's what eternal life begins as, and that's how it finds its completion as well. The gospel writer of John would tell us this. He would say in John chapter 17, verse 3, he would give us a definition of eternal life. He would literally say, now this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that know, K-N-O-W, it's not a head knowledge. It's an intimate, personal knowledge. It's a relationship with Christ. And so when when John gives us this definition, it's Jesus speaking quite literally. Jesus says, look, this is what it's all about. This is how you'll know eternal life. You will know God and you will know me and you will have a relationship with us and that will continue to develop and nurture and grow. And that's what God has done in my own life and that's how I know this is true. And so when we get to this question, is Jesus really the only way to salvation? I have to reflect on my own journey just as I want to invite you to do. And I have to also recognize that um, Scripture has something to say into this, right, in both good and uh, challenging ways. Because just as I said, there are some of you who are going to appreciate what I have to say this morning, and there are those of you who will not exactly like what I have to say today. I'm going to try to remain as scriptural as I can, and I'm going to try to help us all understand, because if we're coming at this from two different strains, why even ask this question? Clearly, Jesus is the way, or or, um, golly, there must be other ways, but certainly I want to follow Jesus' way. Then what are we going to do with this, and how are we going to encounter this? Because scripture gives us angles at both, right? I want to look at what I consider to be the primary scripture that kind of guides this thought and why it is we even have this question, is Jesus really the only way? It comes from John's gospel. Um, It's not the only scripture, but it's the primary one that whenever somebody's asking this question, they will always reference back to John 14, verse 6. And so we will eventually get there, but I first want to talk about John and his gospel because John's gospel is so profound and so powerful, it helps each of us to better understand his intent and what it is Jesus is trying to reveal in and through John's gospel. So let's start at the beginning. John's gospel is unique among all four of the gospels. In fact, 90% of the content in John's gospel is distinctive just to his gospel. You you can reflect on some of the stories, right? The wedding at Cana of Galilee, only in John's gospel. The conversation with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, only in John's gospel. The woman at the well who discovers living water in John chapter 4, only in John's gospel. The the powerful uh, miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four gospels, but John's version is radically different, and it helps us to encounter a very radical uh, sense of who Jesus is. We get to the, the, the man born blind, and we discover that it's a unique story just to John's gospel. The woman who was caught in adultery and was about to be stoned only in John's gospel. The last discourse of Jesus telling the disciples about what it is he needs to do in order to be glorified only in John's gospel. 90% of what's in John's gospel is only there. It's not in any of the other gospels. And so he's clearly got a unique way to tell the same old story about Jesus and his love. 
And he also has some very clear um, ways to help us better understand it. He has some, some um, uh, unique ways to spiritualize what it is he's trying to reveal, right? So when we, when we get to the, uh, Nicodemus, he's asking a question, how can, how can you be born again? How does that work? How does a, a baby come out of the womb again? And Jesus spiritualizes it to talk about our spiritual faith and our connection with him, right? The woman at the well who simply came to draw water, and all she wants is some water for her family. And Jesus says, hey, this water's good, but you'll thirst from this again. The water that I can provide, you will never thirst again, right? He spiritualizes a very common, ordinary, physical object. He does the same with the bread that feeds the 5,000. He, he takes bread and he feeds 5,000, and then he highlights the fact that uh, we, we got bread in the wilderness for Moses, but this bread that I'm going to provide, it will be living bread, and from it you will never hunger or thirst. He spiritualizes it. The man born blind in John chapter 9, he, we're told right off the bat that he, neither his parents nor he sinned. That's not why he was born blind. He was born blind in order that God's acts might be made known in and through him. You see, Jesus has a powerful way in John's gospel of spiritualizing common, ordinary, everyday things, water, bread, even wine, sight, healing, all of it becomes a way to connect us in a relationship with Jesus that will nurture our hearts and our souls as we find eternal life and as we find this connection with him. And then there are three major themes in the Gospel of John. There are others, but these are the, the major themes. And the first thing John wants us to know, and he starts off in this highly unique fashion in what's known as the prologue, John 1, verses 1 to 18, and he, he doesn't have a birth narrative. He doesn't describe how Jesus is born. But what he tells us is that Jesus is with God from the very beginning. In fact, that Jesus is God. And this is a primary component in John's Gospel. It starts right off the bat, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Word, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus will always be known as not only the Son of God, but also God Himself. He was in the beginning with God, and everything was with him from the very beginning. Uh, the I am statements, which are in John's gospel and only in John's gospel, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, right? I am the light, I am the resurrection, I am the gate, I am the shepherd. Those are all only in the gospel of John, and guess what? They are there because they indicate that Jesus is God because I am is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so John wants us to know very clearly Jesus is God as well. In fact, it's in John's gospel that we get the foundational doctrinal understanding of the Holy Trinity. And it's a powerful beginning point for us to understand that Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is God himself. The second component that is a major theme in John's gospel is this uh, understanding that Jesus brings life, that we can have a life abundant, that we can have life everlasting, that we can have eternal life. He gave us that definition in John chapter 17, and this life is powerful. It is a, a way to encounter God in Christ now, not waiting until after we die, not having some kind of conversion after we die, but rather finding that life in the here and now. And it, too, starts at the very beginning of John's gospel. Verses 3 and 4 of John chapter 1 literally say, all things were made by him, meaning Jesus, and nothing was made without him, right? 
and what was in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And we begin to get this clue that Jesus brings life, and it's abundant, and it wells up. So much so that in the Gospel of John, this concept of life, whether abundant or everlasting or, or um, eternal, is mentioned no fewer than 45 times just in the Gospel of John. That's more than three times the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, more than four times Mark's Gospel, and therefore we begin to get this picture, right, that somehow God in Christ is bringing us life, and it is full, and it is rich, and it is abundant, and John wants us to know that. And then finally, John wants us to know about the ways in which Jesus dwells with God and that by dwelling with God, we, in knowing Jesus, can dwell with God as well. And guess where it starts? John chapter 1. It all starts in that prologue in those first few verses, and it's absolutely fascinating. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, Jesus, right? The Word became flesh and made his home with us. Some texts say he, he dwelt with us. He, he, he began to, uh, I love the way the um, message says it, he moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and a part of all that means is that God came to be with us, that God literally wanted to dwell in our midst and wanted us to encounter God in a very real and tangible way in a relationship. And so the Word became flesh, became human, and dwelt with us. And we would see this not just in the first chapter of John, but in several other of the either I am statements or the ways in which uh, uh, John needs us to know that Jesus is dwelling with us, remaining with us. Look at John chapter 6 when he describes the living bread. And he says, you may eat of my flesh and you may drink of my blood, and if you do, you will abide in me and I in them. This abide, remain, dwell. You get to John chapter 10 and the beautiful imagery of the shepherds, right? And we've got this same concept, I am the good shepherd. He says, and I know my sheep and they know me, and, and uh, just as I know my father and my father knows me. It is this sense of relationship and connection and, and abiding together. And then, of course, who could forget the beautiful imagery in John chapter 15, which likewise is distinctive of the imagery of the vine, right? If you keep my commandments, John would say, or Jesus would say, John's recording, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, and as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in him. There's that abide. What John wants us to know in and through Jesus is that God dwells within him, and if we abide, remain, dwell, live, make our being in Jesus, we will know God. And John would tell this over and over and over again throughout his gospel, helping us to discover abundant life and that Jesus is God and we can have this powerful relationship. So it's under that guise that I want to now go to John chapter 14 as we understand the content of the gospel so that we can better understand the heart of what it is Jesus is saying when we get to this phrase upon which the question itself is based. Listen to John chapter 14, the first six verses. Some of us will have heard these verses many, many times. Some of us may have never heard them before at all. 
But what I want you to find in them is comfort and hope and strength for your journey in a relationship with Jesus. So before I read, let me just say this. In John chapter 13, Jesus uh, is washing the disciples' feet, right? That too is unique to John's gospel. In the other gospels, there's a Last Supper, and we have what we now call communion based on the Last Supper, and that's where they are. But in John's gospel, he washes their feet, and as he washes their feet, he tells them, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And that love will manifest itself in servanthood and, and submission and humility. And that's really the way love works, isn't it? That I submit to you and that I care for you and that I want to offer my whole self to you, whoever you are, my spouse, my child, my good, good friend, uh, my siblings. I want to love you just like God has loved me. And at the end of chapter 13, I want you to go home today and read the last 10 or 12 verses of, of John chapter 13, because at the end of John chapter 13, after Jesus has given them the new commandment, he says, I'm going to a place you cannot come. I'm going somewhere that you cannot follow. And Peter says to him, I want to follow. I can follow. Peter always wanted to follow, right? But Jesus says to him, no, Peter, you're not ready. You can't. You won't. And I assure you, you're not ready. And then we get to chapter 14. And Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. To which Thomas responds, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's that last verse, in fact, the last phrase of the verse, upon which uh, much has been said about this question, is Jesus really the only way? And I just want to help us to understand the context of this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He starts off by beginning what, again, is called the last discourse. I'm about to go away. I'm about to go do something that you cannot do, and you can't come with me right now. Eventually you will, but you cannot now. And so he says in John, in John chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. He, he, he wants to set them at ease and help them to know that this is very purposeful, that this is very intentional, and actually going to be a very good thing. And if you'll read uh, John chapter 16, uh, man, it tells you all about why this is a good thing, why Jesus needs to go away. But he needs to help quell their fears, right? Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And this is the beginning of John, uh, or Jesus in John, kind of reasserting this acknowledgement that I am one with God, that I am the Father, that I am uh, God. I am, right? And then he goes in to describe something that starts quite physical sounding, tangible, right? A house, my father's house. And then he moves to a very spiritual rendering of what that means. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, it says, and there's that dwelling Menos is the Greek word. And menos occurs 40 times in the Gospel of John. 
And every time it's rendered as uh, abide or remain or dwelling place, it's a verb. And what it means is that we need to remain in Jesus, that we need to have this relationship with Jesus, that we need to have this connection with Jesus. And so uh, Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, and remember the house that we talked about in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word of God became flesh and made a home among us. And so part of what we begin to realize is that this is not a physical place to which we might go so much as it is an understanding of the spiritual nature of the way in which God dwells with us and wants a relationship with us and desires to know us so that we can then know his son. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And he begins to say, well, I'm going to go and prepare this and get it all ready. In other words, I've got to go to the cross and suffer and die. I've got to go do my work so that I can help save the world. This is what I'm called to. This is what, Peter, you can't go to because you're not ready. And if you'll read John chapter 14, the rest of the chapter after verse 6, you'll know that Philip enters into a conversation with Jesus as well. And he says, hey, we just want to know the Father. You keep talking about the Father. Why don't you show us the Father? And I can well imagine that Jesus was shaking his head and going, God, how many times do I have to tell these people? I'm just, I don't, I don't know why. Why? Because they don't get it. It's why Thomas asks the very real question of Jesus. We, we, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? Will you help us know the way? We want to find this place. You're telling us you're going and you're preparing and you're getting it ready and somehow we're going to be able to go, but we can't go now. So how can we know the way? And so a question turns into a reflection on previous questions as well in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus, how can a baby be born out of the womb again? A woman at a well, how can you draw water from which we will never thirst again? How is it that this man was born blind but did not sin? How can that be? You see, people had questions in John's gospel, and Jesus always had an answer, and he has an answer to Thomas's genuine question now. How can we know the way? Thinking it's a physical place, thinking it's some tangible location. And Jesus says... I, I am the way and the truth and the life. And instantly we discover that it's not about a physical place, but rather it's about a relationship. It's about a connection with the Lord of life. It's about a realization that Jesus has something more for us than simply head knowledge. I am the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus goes on right? No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's where pause sometimes comes for us because we're all good with the first half of the sentence. He is the way and the truth and the life, and I believe that, and I pray you believe that. But sometimes we get stuck on that last phrase, and we're not 100% clear, and I just need to tell you what I'm about to share with you is my opinion about what Jesus meant by what he said, and that's all I can give you because it's all I understand is my opinion about what Jesus said. I believe that when Jesus is having this personal conversation with Thomas and the 12, he's having an intimate conversation with people that he has been coaching and mentoring and, and training up in the faith and helping to set free to, to go share the gospel, right? And in that conversation, he wants them to know 
the beauty of this relationship that he's claiming for them. I do not believe Jesus had any intent at all when he said, no one comes to the Father except by me. I don't believe he had any intent of saying, to the exclusion of everybody else, or nobody else matters, or this other faith or these other faiths are not good. Here's what I believe Jesus was conveying. He was helping them to understand the relationship of what is intended in coming to know him and the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. And when he says no one, I happen to believe, what he means is, and we all do this sometimes, right? We say something that has an intention that we don't always speak. I wonder if what he meant was none of you will come to the Father except through me. And I believe that's very true. For any of us who profess faith in Jesus, for any of us who claim that he is our Savior, for any of us who want to follow in his footsteps, for any of us who want to make him Lord of our lives, that there's no other way to the Father but through him. And I think that's all he wanted to convey. I don't believe he was trying to say nothing else matters and nothing else works. I think all he was trying to convey to his deep, clear friends is I want you to know me and I want you to know the Father, and I want you to understand how rich that relationship is. I don't think he was making a claim of validity about other faiths. I don't think he was claiming an invalidity about other faiths. I think he was simply saying, if you want to be my follower, if you understand my ways, if you want to help others know who I am, there's no other way but through me. To me, that begins to change how I understand the question. And I have to be honest with you, I don't have a good answer for you today about the question, is Jesus the only way? But here's something I do know, and I know to the core of my gut and have known for over 45 years now, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life for me. Jesus is the best way and the truth and the life for others. I am convinced of that. And I'm also convinced that for all of my days and for the rest of my days, I will continue to try to help others understand that the way of Jesus is the only way to find real life and real truth because he is for me and the best way, the way and the truth and the life. And therefore, what I need to do and what I believe we need to do is figure out ways to understand how he is our way and how he offers life and truth for us so that we can then offer that way and that truth and that life for others. Because I know in my own life, it changed my entire trajectory. It changed who I became. It changed how I related to others. It changed how I saw the world. It changed how I understood life because Jesus is for me. And I can only believe for you the way and the truth, and the life. And when and only when we discover that reality for our lives can it help us discover who and whose we are so that we can help others begin to know the wonder of that abundant, rich, everlasting, eternal life. That's the life Jesus promised according to John. And that's what I believe we can offer to others. If only we'll claim it for ourselves in nurturing and growing that relationship and then sharing it with others in the ways in which
we breathe and have our being. May it be so for each of us as we choose to take up this man called Jesus to transform who we are and how we are in the world. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus. Thank you for the power of his name. Thank you for the wonder of his grace. Thank you for the gift of his love. Help us, Lord, to know, as John reminded us over and over, he is one with you. He is love beyond love and calls us to love beyond love. And he is the life that is beyond life. Help us, Lord, to share that gift each and every day with whomever we may encounter. May he be the joy of our desire in the ways in which we live. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we claim as the way and the life. Amen.